Today, I uh, have the pleasure of welcoming Clay Ward to give the talk um, on uh, disaster preparedness and management following a variety of scenarios um, and that he can uh, expound upon um, over his talk. And for some background, uh, Clay's a physician assistant and founder of Nereus Medical Solutions. He's has significant experience in delivering care and solving complex medical contingency issues in remote settings, particularly within the maritime environment. Prior to founding Nereus, Clay spent 24 years in the U.S. Navy, um, first enlisting as a hospital corpsman, in a com which is a combat medic, and culminating his career as a lieutenant commander and medical officer with Naval Special Warfare Development Group. His career spanned numerous deployments, providing medical care in austere environments around the world. While assigned to Naval Special Warfare, he was recognized as a subject matter expert regarding medical contingency planning and risk mitigation. He received numerous personal awards during his uh, service in, in the military, um, which included the Defense Merit Meritorious Service Medal and Bronze Star. He's provided medical care and training uh, throughout the globe. Um, most recently, um, he's involved in uh, the Bahamas and uh, management following Hurricane Dorian, was first on the ground there. Um, and uh, he is uh, a graduate of University of Nebraska, got his master's in physician assistant studies and, um, in the Interservice Physician Assistant Program and uh, created a postgraduate or completed a postgraduate uh, PA fellowship in ortho um, <clears throat> at the Naval Medical Center in Portsmouth, Virginia. He's an advanced open water diver and certified hyperbaric practitioner. So without further ado, uh, Clay, welcome uh, to our group, and we look forward to hearing what you have to say. Hey, great, uh, Mike. Thanks for that introduction, and thanks to Dr. Levine as well for uh, allowing me to come and speak today. Uh, thanks to everyone for logging in. I know your time is valuable, uh, so I do appreciate it. Um, so over the next 45 minutes or so, what I want to do is, uh, you know, as the topic suggests, is just share some lessons learned um, and, and, you know, post-disaster and conflict um, regions, you know, delivering care in these areas, uh, you know, resource-limited settings, um, and, and pulling that from uh, those 24 years in the military and uh, also the, as recent as our uh, response down into the Bahamas. So um, I will definitely say right out of the gate that I am not here to tell anyone how to practice medicine. The, the incredible talent in the audience is, is not lost on me. Um, so I've not, I do have some uh, case studies in here, but they're really more just to really get you thinking about how you approach um, this, these types of situations with your planning, uh, with your team dynamics. Um, and then just, you know, a couple of objectives, just kind of showing the correlation between the ICU uh, and, and the battlefield and all stair settings, uh, you know, and then outlining some key components um, for a successful crisis response uh, in a resource limited setting. And then, you know, some common mistakes that uh, that I've seen in my career uh, when it comes to disaster planning. Uh, you know, it's very interesting when this talk was, was, was uh, first put together, you know, COVID-19 was not uh, on the radar at all. Um, and it's, it continues to uh, surprise me at how much correlation there is between ICUs 
and uh, conflict zones, particularly when you're looking at a, a crisis, a pandemic like we are now, where people are being forced to function on a day-to-day basis uh, with limited resources and an and above capacity. Um, so just to give you a little background here on uh, on the uh, on Nereus, because uh, I think that'll help maybe uh, help you understand kind of where we're pulling this talk from. Um, so as I was transitioning out of the Navy, uh, after 24 years, uh, you know, I was trying to decide really which way I wanted to go in medicine. Um, I had really enjoyed austere medicine and I was not ready to step out of that arena. Uh, and as I'm transitioning out, I start to get calls, you know, to consult on various projects and, and jobs, uh, particularly within the remote maritime setting. Um, I was lucky enough to be introduced to uh, Dr. Mike McCurdy through a, a mutual friend that's a critical care doc out at Mayo. Uh, he was familiar with Mike's uh, work in Haiti as well as his um, experience in uh, critical care, or excuse me, in uh, resource limited settings. And so as we met and began to talk, you know, Nereus was shaped into really what it is now. And we'll expand on this as we move forward. But Delivering care in a post disaster setting, particularly within that first, you know, we'll say 72 to 96 hour window is where we've focused. Um, And like I said, we'll touch on that going forward here. Uh, So, a great picture here as we get started of unlimited resources. I know many of you, this is a very familiar uh, picture to you. Obviously, this patient in a resource-limited environment is going to be approached uh, differently than he would be in the ICU. So as we're thinking about disaster response, uh, you know, I think you can correlate this to like resuscitation principles to help, uh, help, help it make sense. Um, so optimizing the health of, of the system in, to potentially survive any injury or illness, right? That's, that's kind of where the preparedness comes in, optimizing your health before the event occurs. Once there starts to become a problem, you want to rapidly identify that problem, and that's establishing your, your ground truth. Um, excuse me here just a minute. I'm going to make some screen adjustments. Okay. So time-dependent source control and resuscitation. So these are things like mobilizing your non-medical teams to help address the other litany of issues that we'll discuss um, that can derail your efforts to deliver care. You know, prioritizing that medical care in an unemotional way uh, from triage all the way to evacuation, that can be very tough in a resource-limited setting. and then managing the sequela, coordinating the ongoing care delivery. And so one of the things that we learned, you know, very early on was the medical care that you're delivering, you know, immediately after that disaster in the first 24 to 48 hours looks vastly different than the care that's being delivered at seven to 14 days out. So early on, you're dealing with the trauma, right? You've got the you know, the lacerations, the broken bones, the head injuries, the, the things that just come with, you know, earthquakes and, you know, hurricanes and types of disasters that we see frequently. Um, 
but down the road, it's starting to become, you know, the disease sequela. So contaminated water, uh, people with chronic medical problems that are running out of medications, you know, running out of hypertensive meds, running out of insulin. So thinking about that, if you're responding to one of these situations is critical because you, you'll need to repack and rethink how you approach these. So, and from a preparedness standpoint, you're, you're talking about capacity assessment. You know, was there existing infrastructure prior to the disaster? And if so, what's the state of it now? Is it anything that we can potentially utilize? And then understanding both the, the high likelihood and high severity problems that you may occur will then allow you to shape your education and your training before responding, uh, whether that be simulations, protocols, whatever, whatever you choose to implement. But that's an important piece, that ongoing training um, to help streamline your response. So I know Mike had worked on this quite a bit in, uh, in Haiti in the past where they outlined, you know, where the existing infrastructure was located, what resources were available, uh, what interventions could be used where. And then they take this information and they continue on through education and training with local health care providers. You know, the Haiti Acute and Emergency Care Conference was a really great uh, demonstration of, of this ongoing effort. That information can then be turned around into protocols that can be very specific to the area that you're responding to and the resources that you're dealing with at the time. So this was a photo of of, uh, the, the, of Puerto Rico uh, following Hurricane Maria. Um, so one of the things that we'll point out is all the training, all of the uh, protocols in the world, we won't prepare you for everything. So one of the problems that was we were seeing in Puerto Rico, uh, and I did not respond to this event, but this is knowledge that was passed along to us from some folks that we knew that did. Uh, they had some really good capable medical teams that were stranded once they arrived in Puerto Rico uh, because they just did not have the logistical support to move around. And so getting to those really cut off isolated places in a time efficient manner became very difficult. And so that's something that we'll talk about more here soon uh, as far as how, how we respond to these things, what components go with the medicine part of a response so as I said earlier, we look at this, this time window, right? Bridging this gap, this, you know, 72 to 96 hour window right after injury, or excuse me, right after a disaster. Illness and injury has time sensitive outcomes. Everyone knows that it's no different when we're responding to a disaster. We want to rapidly identify those problems, which is establishing our ground truth, gives us that good situational awareness to make the decisions that we, we need to make. We want to ensure that we have the capability to be flexible and adjust as that ground truth changes. Robust telemedical support, you know, having that mobile telehealth platform and allowing that communication reach back uh, to, to, to additional health is, cru is crucial. Having your air delivery platforms, your, your uh, additional resources, your team is going to have to be replaced at some point they can't keep the same people on the ground forever in those environments uh, so all of these things are things we're going to touch on here shortly 
So, you know, the, the current paradigm in disaster relief is pretty robust. It's a large frame aircraft, large logistics supply chains uh, coming in, delivering supplies, uh, which are great and they're needed. Uh, the, the one thing that sticks out with these is that they're very, um, they, they take a while to get going. You know, once they do, they're a great resource to have, but they can take some time to get these resources in place. They're very dependent on things such as our runways open. You know, we saw this in the Bahamas right after the hurricane. There was no, in Treasure Cay specifically, uh, no one knew what the state of the runway was, uh, if it was actually viable. It, it required some work to get in there and, and, to, and determine if these larger planes could land. And so, and that takes time. So you're talking a couple of, couple of days to particularly, <clears throat> pardon me. So kind of the alternate paradigm that we've been working on with our partners was looking at the different types of mobility platforms and the different ways of getting into a disaster, right? Whether that's seaplane or a parachute, uh, you know, using drones to establish communications early on to help relay that ground truth back. These are all just different ways of thinking about the same problem and getting you there faster. So this is just a theoretical scenario. This could look different, certainly, but, you know, a five-person team uh, establishing an air bridge early on, uh, this, just, this is kind of a snapshot of one way to approach disasters and, and, and teams in these settings. The non-traditional air mobility is absolutely critical, though, in, in establishing care in these environments. The telehealth platforms that we uh, talked about earlier. So there's telehealth is getting a lot of um, publicity right now. It's very, you know, everyone's doing telehealth, trying to minimize, you know, contact with coming into offices. So crucial in a disaster situation of having some way to relay this information back to your your team uh, that's supporting you. And then the source control is is going back to thinking about those non-medical teams that are helping to control some of the other uh, issues and problems that arise uh, outside of the realm of medicine. You know, the communications piece, the security piece, the logistics piece, all of these things, you know, have to be dealt with simultaneously to, to the medicine. And then the triage, the, you know, the non-emotional triage, the evacuation, how this plays out, um, is, is going to be vastly different. And then lastly, the, the fourth point we had touched on was this, this ongoing sequela of the continued infrastructural relief, the medical support on the ground. And as I mentioned, the, uh, re the response at one week and two weeks out from a disaster is going to look markedly different than the response at 24 hours. So uh, this is one of my favorite pictures, um, a very you know, peaceful, serene looking picture to me. Um, when I took this picture, though, I would say this was probably one of the most dangerous places on earth at the time. This was taken uh, sometime back in the mountains of northeastern Afghanistan. But the picture just reminds me uh, of all of the things outside of medicine um, that you have to think about when you're delivering care in these type of environments. You ignore them at your own peril and you have to, they all play into ground truth. And so you have to be thinking really about the big picture, not just the medicine piece 
as you're approaching the, the planning uh, and the response to a crisis. So let's jump in with a, with a case study. Again, not to uh, teach you and tell you how to do medicine, just kind of get you thinking a little bit about some, some cases and patients that I had in the, in the past and how we responded. So four-person medical team providing relief in a, in a conflict zone, isolated, 9,000 feet above sea level, there's been a little bit of calm as of lately, so you're able to assist the local population providing some medical care. The closest medical facility is a, it's about a one-hour helicopter flight away. Driving is pretty much out of the option, uh, risky for multiple reasons, and the terrain would take you two days. So you're prepared to settle in for the evening. The 42-year-old male stepped on a landmine is brought into your location by his family. You're just getting there. Like I said, you're working out of a, a tent uh, and basically a med, med bag. Um, guy lifts his head up as soon as he comes in and then immediately unresponsive. And so, and this is what you walk into uh, or walk or comes into you, I should say, uh, on, on the stretcher. So bilateral traumatic uh, amputations, um, horrible injury. So, obviously, obviously needs a, a surgeon and, and some advanced care, but you don't have it. So what would you do? So just things to think about as we go through the the talk, you know, what's, what's in your bag, you know, everybody carries different things. Um, you know, your, your level of training and your, your, your skill set helps to determine that, but you know, what, what are you carrying? Um, what's your priority here? You know, airway or bleeding, uh, you know, you, you got a blast injury, you know, would you crack this patient, um, tourniquets? I bring all this up again, just to, they're not quite as taboo as they were at one time, but um, sometimes the way you approach these patients is markedly different. And the interventions that you may not do right away um, with more resources, you may be a little more aggressive about doing um, to save a life in a resource limited setting. So just things to think about. Uh, you know, hypotensive resuscitation, very, very important uh, when you, when you don't have unlimited fluids. So uh, again, not to belabor this, but you know, what do we do? Tourniquets, bilateral lower extremities, uh, oral and nasal adjuncts, uh, BVM assist with some O2, uh, 18 gauge, normal saline, uh, hypotensive resuscitation, just keeping that systolic blood pressure to 90. There were limited interventions for uh, head trauma. So again, we were just trying to balance the resuscitation with cerebral oxygenation. And as you can see here, followed that March algorithm as opposed to the you know, more, more uh, well-known ABCD uh, algorithm. And then EVAC. So where do we start? So I, what I was trying to do early on there was just kind of lay some of the foundations of how we start to dive into this, but it's a, it's a vast problem when you're talking about a disaster response, uh, responding to a crisis, there's a lot to think about. Uh, and it, it can be very overwhelming if you don't have some way of approaching it and thinking about it. Uh, this picture here, it's, it's hard to tell uh, on your screen, but the little white specks you're seeing was the massive, debris field that was starting to form between Florida and the Bahamas um, shortly after the hurricane as we were flying in. So this is an obvious example of, of poor planning. Uh, you, you would think this, you know, would be an easy one to plan for, but there, you know, some of them are, some of them are a little more complicated, but 
as you're thinking about this, so plans are of little importance, but planning is essential. So try to think about it from that, that perspective as we move through this. So uh, as, as Mike mentioned, and we, we have a, a maritime background. So this is one of our nurse practitioners. who's also a uh, diver and hyperbaric clinician on a, on a training dive. So planning is very important to us in the, in, in the diving world. If any of you dive, because you, you know, things such as nitrogen and oxygen that we don't really think much about walking around uh, doing our day-to-day uh task, you know, they can kill you at depth if you're not adequately planning for them. So some things when you're looking at the planning for a disaster, right? A paralysis by analysis, death by committee is a real living thing. Um, at some point, you just have to get going. I'm, I'm not telling you to rush in without doing some sort of adequate planning, but you can literally plan something until you miss the window to respond. So at some point, you just have to get moving. So as I'm developing the the plan, going through the planning steps, I try to think about what keeps me on task and what's going to keep me on target for a successful response and in, in, in achieving the goals that we're, we're setting out to do. So my planning should reinforce my objectives. So I should I have already outlined why I'm responding, what's, what's the nature of the crisis, the disaster, why are we going in? And let's, our planning should reinforce those objectives uh, as we're moving through the process. It should have a fluid timeline. Um, you know, your plan, it, the problem with a plan that has a very rigid timeline is it frustrates the team considerably. So there's so many things that are out of your control in these situations that if you are not flexible, you do not have that flexibility built into your timeline, you're going to drive yourself crazy. So just know that your timeline is not going to be tight. Uh, you can keep it as tight as you can, but just understand that things are going to change. It's a changing environment. And so allow yourself that fluid timeline so that your team's not getting frustrated, you're not getting frustrated. Uh, and plus that will happen very early on if you don't take it into consideration. So then like everything else, what are those performance indicators, right? What are we going to use? What are the metrics that we're going to use to determine that we're meeting our objectives? How do we know? How are we gauging success? And then what's our exit strategy? So all of these responses, you know, we, we learned this very well in the, in, the, in the military setting. You have to have an exit strategy uh, to coming out of these situations, there needs to be some sort of a handoff or unless you're going to be prepared to stay until the job is done, which as we know, can be years. Uh, and that's not really feasible for, for most people, in most institutions. So thinking early on about that exit strategy is, is crucial. So your, your plan will not survive first contact. So that's one of the reasons why I said, I don't like the word plan because it's just not going to survive first contact. So I can tell you as our team was responding in the Bahamas, by the time our flight had taken off out of Fort Lauderdale, before we landed, the planning that we started with was already old. Things had already changed on the ground. The ground truth had had moved on. And so that information that we initially used was already outdated. So if you have this rigid plan that you're trying to stick to, and then it's not keeping up with the ground truth, again, that is something that will be very frustrating to 
the team and it can really paralyze you and your ability to uh, to function. Uh, this picture here was the airport in Treasure K uh, a couple of days after the airport had been opened back up. Uh, early on, there were very few people there. Uh, as things started progressing, it became a meeting point and somewhat of a focal point with supplies and flights uh, going in and out. <clears throat> Excuse me. So don't confuse plans with planning. So that's really what I've been kind of harping on here with you uh, to you is don't confuse those two. Um, you, your planning is important, but don't wrap your head around getting stuck into a plan that's not flexible. Think about your flow, right? What's our flow? We've got that fluid timeline. How are we going to, um, how are we going to implement our planning to allow us to respond to the ground truth? You have to acknowledge ground truth. Uh, it, it's changing. It will dictate your planning. If you ignore it, you're going to be very ineffective uh, in your response. So you have to have that confidence to adapt in real time and trust that your people on the ground uh, can make those decisions. So let's go into a second case study here real quick. So your team lands via a caravan aircraft on a remote island following a hurricane. It's been 24 hours since storm passed. Crowds are quickly gathering at the airport looking for essential supplies, medical assistance, uh, local government infrastructure is pretty much non-existent at this point. There's no security. If you haven't seen a small caravan or had the pleasure of flying in one, it's a very comfortable ride. That's what it looks like. So a relatively small team, uh, less than 10, 10 people. The primary role is to reach these isolated areas of the island and provide medical care to patients who are cut off due to impassable roads or those that are too critical to travel. So the local healthcare providers have addressed most of the urgent needs around the airport. So some things to consider. How would you establish effective triage when you're working in small teams? Um, this can be tough because if you start to split your team up, then you, you lose some of the, the functionality of, of, your, of your group. So how do you address that? Um, how do you allocate your resources to ensure that the most critical patients are receiving care? So this is where the term mission creep comes in. And if you're not familiar with this, it basically think of this as the perfect example is you land at that runway that picture I just showed you and you're expecting nobody to be there. And all of a sudden there's 500 people and they need help. So it would be very easy to set up shop right there and never take another step. And you could help people all day long. Um, and there wouldn't be anything necessarily wrong with that. But if you're, if you said your objective was to get out and catch those, in those areas and, and reach those patients that were cut off and there were too, too injured or sick to travel, then you would not be meeting your objective. And so that's the way to think about mission creep. Like you had an objective, you went in to do it, something else happened along the way that derailed you from your objectives. This can be very tricky because sometimes as that ground truth is changing, you have to, you have to adjust and you have to, you know, you have to ask yourself, is this mission creep or are we adjusting to, to our planning uh, because the ground truth is training and those lines can be blurred a little bit, but just keep it in the back of your mind that ask yourself, is this a, is this a, a reasonable adjustment to our objectives and our planning or is this mission creep? And then how would you manage the safety of your team in a situation where crowds are gathering in desperation? So, I will tell you in the Bahamas, uh, never one time that our team feel uh, 
threatened or un- that, it, that we were in, in an unsafe environment. Uh, quite the contrary, everybody that we uh, met and came in contact with was very hospitable, very nice, wanted to help, helped us get around and, and, and show us where the people that had the most critical need were and were very helpful. Um, so that was certainly not the case in the Bahamas, but it is, uh, it can be the case in certain other areas that we have gone into. So you have to think about that security piece. So when we're talking about that response, so shoot, move, and communicate is a, is a saying that uh, everyone that has spent any time in the military understands. These, if you can do those three things well, they'll tell you that you can be very successful in the military, uh, particularly in, in, on the battlefield. So get rid of shoot. Let's call it medicine. So let's, the medicines are a metaphor for shoot, right? So medicine, move, and communicate. So keep in mind that medicine is only a third of the equation for success, right? It's an important part, but it's a third of it. And I love this picture because I think it's a great example, uh, a simplified example of all three of these. So the gentleman that you see uh, with the dark hair and sunglasses there uh, is a fantastic critical care doctor named uh, Greg Halgen up in Vancouver. Uh, He's a fantastic critical care doc who also is doing great work up in British Columbia in, in the SAR world and remote technical rescue. Uh, he was he came down and helped us out on our response in the Bahamas. The other gentleman is a, an expert communications uh, person. And then we have one of our simple mobility platforms. So we've kind of got uh, all of the, the medicine, the move and communicate all right there in one, uh, in, in one simplified platform. So let's talk about the medicine part real quick. So you're limited by your resources, not your capability. That mountainside, that remote island is not the same environment as a, as a hospital or an ICU. Uh, it's, and it can be very frustrating. It can be very frustrating depending on how you approach it. If you know that you're capable of doing uh, some, some great things and saving a life and you don't have the resources to do that. So that's, you have to understand that going into these situations hard decisions become exponentially more difficult. You know, the triage keeps coming up, but again, who, who's, who's medevaced and who's not on a flight when you have limited space can be a very, very difficult decision to make. So you have to get comfortable with what you have. Um, the move part is probably the most critical. Uh, obviously you can't save anyone until you get there. Uh, we talked about this, or you know, earlier uh, in the Puerto Rico response, um, and we saw this in the Bahamas as well. Some very, very good, capable uh, SAR teams, medical providers, who were made it to uh, the island to the K, uh, but at that point had a, a really difficult time moving around, solving that logistics piece and and uh, that mobility, and so that. Uh, that, that can paralyze your team. So those mobility platforms are essential. You, you know, they've got to be reliable. They've got to be competent. You have to, your team has to have a way to get around once it's on the ground. You have to have a way to move patients on the ground and you have to have a way to evac those patients. Uh, and you also need that supply line, that logistics chain to be uh, reliable. So I love this saying on the communication part. The single biggest problem with communication is the illusion that it has taken place. You could probably put this into any facet of 
work or life, and it would apply. So everyone, we all think we're great communicators. Um, some people, I guess, are great communicators, but most of the time we're not nearly as, uh, as adept at it as we think we are. So comms in these situations can get very, very tricky. So there's multiple layers that have to take place, and you, you want to avoid uh, stepping on, having these layers step on each other. And this could be a talk all on its own, but just some highlights, you know, you've got your team comms. How's, how's your team on the ground communicating with their other team members? How's that team on the ground communicating with the support personnel, wherever those may be located? If it's a large response, there's interagencies, there's other partners that have to be, their communication is going on with, and then there's press, you know. So all of these things, I can tell you in our Bahamas response, we're all very important and very and very layered. And luckily, we had a team of really good people that made this look easy. But it can, it, you, this is where information overload can happen, and you have to really start to break out who's communicating with who and where that information is going, just to ensure that there's that information overload is just not bogging the team down on the ground. And 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 keep in mind that team forward really should be dictating what's happening they're the ground truth they're the ones that are there not necessarily the supporting uh, players or and oftentimes you may find that the more experienced personnel or are in the command and control running the response even though they may be more experienced they're not on the ground so that that whole comms piece this, this should all be driven by your team that's that's on the ground and multiple layers right two is one and one is none so multiple ways of communicating in case there is a failure because inevitably it will happen. So uh, I do not have any stock in Garmin whatsoever, but I love this uh, device, this Garmin inReach. I like it because it is a a text to to chat device. Uh, So I don't have to hear, I don't have to hear anyone talking. So I don't say that in a bad way. It's, It's just when emotion starts going into these scenarios, if someone has to text me, then I don't have to hear the emotion that's coming through their, uh, you know, through their communication. And it makes it a lot easier to, uh, to respond appropriately. So, but standardizing your language can be very, uh, very important, you know, keeping emotion out of it. Again, it can be tough. People get excited when things are happening and moving fast. Um, and, and so keeping your emotion out of your communications is critical. And, and ensuring that you're really only passing that relevant information. So another case study here. So same, similar as case study number one, except you're in a post-conflict setting, um, you're in a post-conflict setting initially, excuse me, but your team has moved into a small building. Um, you got a very limited trauma bay built out. Um, you know, you're preparing to settle in for the evening. Two casualties arrive. So one is a 25-year-old female, seven months pregnant with a high-velocity gunshot wound through the left femur. And the other one's a 27-year-old male with a high-velocity gunshot wound through the mid-shaft of the left humerus as well as his left chest. So bad problems in a resource-limited setting. So when we talk about what resources were we dealing with, so had a little bit of fluid, some normal saline, um, two doses of TXA, Limited RSI drugs, certainly not enough that you would want to uh, risk uh, having to sedate someone and then not get a medevac in time. A little bit of morphine and ketamine for pain control. 
In this particular instance, there was no medevac considered for 12 hours just due to weather. So going through this again, just thinking through these resource limited uh, settings. So March algorithm again, so massive bleeding airway, respiration, circulation, head trauma. Um, so the 27 year or the female that was pregnant, uh, fairly straightforward. Uh, that was, you know, compressible hemorrhage and extremity. The gentleman with the gunshot wound through the chest and the left humerus, not so straightforward, at least not in that environment. What I'll tell you is uh, ran through the, you know, the algorithm, needled his chest. Obviously, air was not his problem. He had a massive uh, hemothorax, as you would suspect. Uh, once I put a chest tube in, about two liters of blood immediately from that chest tube, um, which he immediately uh, became hypotensive and, and passed. So that was not a situation of non-compressible hemorrhage. That would have been uh, probably a bad problem to have um, on the doorstep of Baltimore shock trauma, much less in the, in the middle of Afghanistan. So I point these things out because it, it can be very, like I said earlier, very frustrating in these resource limited settings where, you know, you would like to, a patient should live and you would like to think there's a good chance of them surviving, but just due to your limited resources, um, it's, it's not, not sustainable. So in summary there, so plans again are of little importance, but planning is essential. Uh, think about your flow. Don't get locked into a, a rigid timeline uh, and a rigid plan that boxes you into how you're going to respond. Uh, keep in mind that you're limited by your resources and not your capabilities. So learn to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations. That that can be a, a, a tricky thing. And in my, my experience, it just comes from time and just being in those situations and, and, and just learning that over time. And then being prepared to make those difficult decisions with triage and resource allocation um, that we that we mentioned. And then keep in mind that a successful response has multiple components to a right of medicine. Medicine is only the third of it. You've got to have the good medicine for sure, but you've got to have the logistics support and you've got to have the comms plan to allow you to succeed. So with that, thank you uh, very much for your time. Uh, I'll, I'll open it up to any questions. If, if there are any, uh, if you want to email me separately, my email's there on the screen, please feel free to, to do that as well. And, uh, and again, thank you very much for the, for the opportunity.